Welcome back to another episode of OTMW. In this one, I tackle my most serious topic matter yet with Dr. David Thomas. Doc, as he prefers to be called, is a black American who was a police officer for more than 20 years, was the author of an award-winning book, The State of American Policing, is also a professor of forensic studies at Florida Gulf University, and even runs his own police counseling services. The man really does it all. We discussed his theory of the cyclical nature of police brutality, followed by change, that is then followed by the system relapsing into more police brutality. We also go into his time as a police officer in different agencies across the US, the effectiveness of community policing and the relationship between policing in America to higher level black American issues and much, much more. Doc really kills it in this episode I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I did discussing it. Welcome to another episode of Overthinking the Modern World. Today, I am very grateful to have Dr. David Thomas with us to talk about policing in America, the state of policing in America, being a black police officer. Doc, how you doing? I'm good, man. New Year's over, so I'm doing real good. I woke up this morning, so I'm even doing better. Fantastic. <laughs> and what have you been up to? Really, right now, today, literally today, is getting my classes ready to start next week um, and answering all my students' questions. And then, I, you know, I have a, a business here in Gainesville where I do mental health for uh, law enforcement officers in North Florida. So I have a couple of things I have to, have to do with those guys. So I've been setting up appointments. So it, it's, it's kind of every day is, is like that. It's school. As law enforcement, and then on the side, uh, I do uh, consulting for agencies and for the uh, National Policing Institute, which used to be known as the National Police Foundation. Very cool. You are a retired police officer. You no longer actually. Right. I've been right. retired since 1996. Wow. <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah, it's been a long time. It's been a long time. Do you think it's changed a lot since then, being a police officer? Um, I, I don't know. It, it, to me, I guess um, when I started, the violence was prevalent. Mm. And so to me, you know, it, it's cyclical in, the, in our society, in this country. Um, we're at a real bad time right now. But, you know, and then at some point we'll come back out the other end of this where, you know, communities and police will get along. But then, it you know, there's it, it, I think that I think in order for policing to grow and for there to be change, some of this has to happen. I feel sorry for the officers who are stuck in the middle of that, though, because it, it's a it's a no win situation. Mm, I see. Why why do you think it's a cyclical thing? Um, I, I make this comment, and um, I make this comment in my book, and I make the comment when I train law enforcement officers that the greatest tragedy that law enforcement um, has is that they have failed to learn from their mistakes of the past. And if you look at policing. You can literally see the same things happening. You know, we'll, we'll get it right for about eight or nine years. Then for whatever reason, it, it goes left and we go back to doing things the way we used to do them. And as a result of that, you end up going right back to the, the way thing, when things were bad, you end up being right back there. And so that's a cycle. It, does, it, it never learns from that. There's always, we were great in the, in the 80s and early 90s. And then 9-11 happened. After, and, be, and the government was funding community programs and community policing so that 
there, there would be relationships with minority communities and law enforcement and poor communities and law enforcement. As soon as 9-11 happened, all that money dried up and the mission of policing changed. Well, added to that mission was terrorism. And so that meant that you had to get equipment, there had to be intelligence training. So, it, so all of that money that we used to get that was fundamental to us getting along with people no longer existed because the mission had changed. Right. And so right. when that happens, there's a disconnect. And that's where we are now. Um, and, and the other part to that, and the difference in being old police and new police is this. Old police, the, the biggest thing we ever saw was Rodney King. And I know we'll talk about that later. And that, that meant that with Rodney King, what happened, that was the first time a police beating had really had ever been televised for the whole world to see yep. beyond past the 60s. But this was really the first time. And so that kind of changed. So, so now today we have social media. And right now, this very minute, somebody's filming a cop doing something wrong, and it's just not that agency. It will be, every cop will be vilified for one person's uh, misdeeds. And so every cop kind of gets sucked into that, uh, gets sucked into that catam, so to speak. Right. Well, don't you think that happens in general, though? When, whenever a case of police brutality is televised, it's a lot of fuck police. Oh yeah. yeah, there's no doubt. There's there's no doubt because it seems like you know they. It's easy to vilify police, but the interesting aspect about it today is because of social media, the police have started to fight back, and by that I mean they have they're starting to put their attitudes, what they think about the people, what they think about race, and so when you do that, you do nothing but intensify that 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 divide. The interesting. So when you and think about this, police have no opinion. Right. They literally they they have no opinion. They are faceless when it comes to what their job is supposed to be. They don't have judgments. That because every decision they make they make is based on law. Well, that's what that's how it's supposed to be, right? Theoretically, yes. But then when we start to get on the internet and start to espouse our personal views and take sides. Then what that does, if you think about the public's view of what police are, that only makes it worse. Right. I see. Okay, I'm curious. When you talked about the cycle of it, where do you think we are in the cycle being in 2023 and kind of, I guess, recently having gone through um, the Black Lives Matter movement? Or I guess it still exists, but it peaked during COVID. We are in the 60s. The 60s. So think about the, the racial discord. Think about the fighting. Think about the Black Panther era. Think about think about all of those groups that rose in relationship to police brutality and, and basically injustice in our system. We are right back there. Um, and the and, and what you see is you see communities, minority or segments of minority communities attacking police. Yes. Okay. They're ambushing cops left and right. Okay. And the only time I ever recall that happening the way this is going is back in the sixties. Yeah. And right. so you, the cycle is there. Now, what do we do? The question becomes how does policing and the government, how do they correct this, this rudder, this ship to get it going in the right direction? 
Everybody will say community policing. What does that mean? I've been all over this country and agencies. I'll ask a chief, well, what type of policing do you do? You do? Oh, we we do community policing. Can you well, kind of give me? Yeah, can you briefly explain? Yeah, what is uh, community yeah. policing? Community policing means that there's literally a partnership between the cops and the community. So much so that cops get out of their cars to go and sit down and talk to people. Like Miss Mabel sitting on the porch drinking her sweet tea. So the cop gets out to go say hey to Miss Mabel. Um, there's a street light out in, in the neighborhood and the, and the neighborhood is trying to get it fixed. And City Hall refuses to do it. The cop becomes the conduit between the, that neighbor and City Hall and the, the street lights get fixed. So the police actually are taking a, um, an interest in the community rather than just going to calls for service. The people in the community get to know officers by name. They get to understand who they are and what they think. And as a result of that, that partnership becomes, we trust you enough to be able to give you information. There's a shooting or there's a drug deal. And we're telling you where, you know, who, who did the shooting. And we trust you enough to tell you that information. We trust you enough to tell you about the drug dealers on the corner. And we trust you enough to tell you when the drug the drugs are coming into our community. That's where there is a true partnership. Um, so they, they will, a lot of agencies will mask it as being those types of relationships. And when I said, so explain it to me. Oh, well, you know, we just put uh, an extra guy out on the street. So you're <laughs> running regular shifts. You're really not doing anything different. And, yeah. but they, they just use, they, they, they like to use that term. Um, when I worked here in Gainesville, I was on the road here, we had teams. And so we actually would put three officer teams in geographical areas that were hot spots. Right. And so, and we didn't take calls for service. We literally would get out, we could patrol any way we wanted. We could ride, we could walk, we could ride scooters, we could ride bicycles. Mm. And our job was to get to know the people. Interestingly, you have no idea how many murders we solved, how much how much drugs in, in a six-month period. My team, the team I worked with, we made 300 arrests for sale and possession of crack cocaine. That's quite a lot. That's huh? huge. Yeah. You know, and, and, and then we were able to institute a basketball program for the kids in the summer. So we, we had drug forfeiture money that we took, and we funded a basketball program for kids in the summer. So two days a week, we took our gun belts off, we put on shorts and T-shirts and we ran a three on three basketball league with the kids. Um, and we did it four hours every Tuesday and Thursday. Yep. So yep. that job is labor intensive and personnel intensive. But what you get back in return is phenomenal. Oh, you were saying was that effective community policing? That was effective community policing because what you got is you got the people to assist you, the people to give you information that you wouldn't normally get. And so those people, you'd go sit down, and I'd sit, we'd sit and talk to drug dealers. I mean, literally have a conversation with them, like we went and sat and talked to Miss Mabel on the porch. We would go sit on their porch and talk to them. If you keep it up, we're going to take you to jail. Mm. And, and so they knew that we were going to take them to jail. What, and, and what you find in these communities are, are there are tons of great people. And there's a very small segment of that community that has, is actually destroying it. The story I like to use is one of the, the, a runner, a drug runner, meaning this, this was a kid that his mom or dad would send him out of the house to go to a car to get $10 to, 
to buy a piece of, of crack cocaine. And then uh-huh. he, he would bring the $10 to the mom or dad, and then they would give him the crack, and then he would take that crack and give it to the person that was looking to purchase it, okay? Yep. The youngest kid I ever saw do that, the runner, was five years old. Jesus. And and what drug dealers got smart with is they thought they started using kids because they knew kids wouldn't get serious time. Mm. So the goal becomes to interrupt that chain. Now, community policing, you know, to, to make a difference, there has to be arrest. It don't mean that I'm walking down the street and I'm shaking everybody's hand and I'm, I'm befriending everybody. There is an element to that where you are letting people know that this behavior is not going to be tolerated. And so you either go to jail or move on. Right. And so, um, and that's the part, you know, the sad part is one of my friends who's a chief, he said that the, the, the sad part in our community, black community, is that people don't want to recognize that our children um, are, a lot of our children are the drug dealers. Mm. A lot of our children are committing the murders. And they have to step up. I, I we um, a couple of years ago in one of the cities here, a friend of mine, he was a chief. They had ten shootings, and this city hadn't had a murder in like ten years. Right. And prior to that, they hadn't had a murder for ten years. So in a, in the month in the span of six months, we've had ten shootings. Wow. And, and we go, we went to we all we all went to a restaurant in that city, and it was interesting that. The lady who was waiting on us, she was able to tell us who did the shooting because the cook in the restaurant told her, but they wouldn't tell the police. Wow. So everyone is kind of everybody knew. Yeah. Ultimately, they developed the resources and, and made and, and, and they made the arrest. But that was the that was the deal. They held on. The community knew. And it just but it took the chief because the chief knew all the people. I mean, they, they knew him personally. And so they were willing to give him that information and they eventually did. But it they knew before we did. The moms knew and they wouldn't tell us. Is it yeah, that makes sense. I'm kind of interested though, is it hard to incentivize community members to give this information? Because it seems as if if everyone is not talking and you decide to talk, that can somehow be traced back to you? It it can be. And so trust is a is a huge issue. Um, is the system going to protect them? And I know in one case, they um, a female came forward and she identified who the, the shooter was. Right. They, they asked the state attorney's office for money state, so they could take her and move her. Nope, we don't have any money for anything like that. They, wow. asked, they asked the uh, Florida Department of Law Enforcement for money. Nope, we don't have any money. So they ended up going to the feds and the feds had money to be able to move her so that she could reestablish her life. Um, I was in, where was I in, it'll come to me, but something very similar happened in another city Hmm. and we were meeting with this, it was in, in Delaware. We, and there was, there was a shooting. This lady's son had gotten murdered. And so we're having a meeting with the, uh, the state, the, uh, the prosecutor, the state attorney, and we're having this conversation about, we says, well, is there anything we can do to take people and we can set them up? Um, in another city, do you have money? No, nope, we don't have money for that. Um, so, you know, how do we protect the people who are involved in the shootings? We, ju- we just don't have money. Wow. So we had a community meeting. And the lady got up, and, and I had already had this, we had this conversation, a meeting with just us. And so we, we're in this community meeting, the lady stands up, 
And she starts to explain how her son was murdered and how every morning at two o'clock when she got up to go and make a baby bottle that she was worried about one of the kids who shot her son standing there in the window waiting for her to kill her. Wow. And you could see the prosecutor, you literally could see her start to cry. And I nodded and I said, that's the lady. Two weeks later, they found money and they moved her and she started a whole new life. But it took that, you know, the law enforcement didn't go do that. It just happened to be we were there with the police foundation doing an assessment of the police department. And in the community meetings, this came up. And so that's when we started asking those questions. But it took that prosecutor to sit there and hear the story from the lady about how she felt that she was going to die in order for them to be able to find money to, to move her. So, right. So it's not really that high of a priority, typically, right? To protect those that give him information. No, it's always going to be a money issue. Hmm. And, and then there's always a trust issue. The trust issue is if I give you information, will your guys go back and tell the suspects who committed the murder or who, who not who committed murder, but who was the witness? Right. And so as a result, people just don't trust. They, they just don't, don't, they don't, minority community does not trust police. And, th and that's why. I see. And I guess the incentive for, the community to give information is to improve the community, right? By having these people locked up. I'll give you an example. And it's interesting because the community will step forward. I want to step forward. I, I, we had two shootings two weeks ago and on a Saturday night, Friday night. And so that there was a shooting, two shootings. And the state attorney's office here asked the, the agencies not to make an arrest. And I'm sitting there with the undersheriff going, what do you mean? What the hell do you mean not making arrests? You, you got suspects who are murder suspects that are running, they're, they're on the street, and any one of us could become a victim. Well, they don't want to start the clock for a speedy trial. Because it, yeah. it mean, meaning that if I'm arrested, then I can demand that the state, that you try me in 90 days. Hmm. So they have probably, the departments have probable cause to make the arrest. So their statement was, look, we have probable cause to make the arrest. We don't work for you. We're making the arrest to get these people off the street. I see. Uh, because it would be more beneficial to have time to gather evidence or build a case. But if the guy's got probable cause to begin with, you still got that whole night. And, and more than likely, they won't have an attorney that is going to say, start that clock. You know, we want to go to trial in 90 days. That's usually something that the rich folks do. Um, because they have money and they can push the state, you know, they, they know they can push the state and they probably won't be ready. Right. I see. Okay. I feel like you mentioned a, a few different locations and a few different stories about um, your time as a cop. And I recall you have a very interesting backstory on how you got started as a police officer. Because w when did you start? Uh, when did you enroll in the police academy? I became a cop in 1978. Right. Do you want to walk us through that a bit? Because I remember there was a bit of conflict with your family as well. Oh, God, yeah. Um, well, first, you got to understand that I grew, I'm a 60s kid. So I grew up, I was born in 56. So I grew up and through the 60s, and I literally grew up hating police. I hated police because I watched, I, I saw the brutality, and I was a victim of brutality. And so it, it was a very interesting, you know, I mean, it was it was a tough time. So we get to the 70s, 
This is and right I'm, after the civil rights movement, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So you know, the civil rights movement, early seventies is kind of, is kind of coming to an end. The country's moving in a different direction. And, um, I, I, I'm in college and I'm getting ready to graduate and I'm like, and I live in the state of Michigan. There are no jobs. The auto industry is dead, uh. literally. Okay. And as a result of that, the big three, you can't get a job at the factory. I'm getting ready to graduate from college with a degree in a bachelor's degree in psychology, which I didn't know until I got to be in my senior year last semester that the degree was pretty much useless unless I got a <laughs> master's degree. Right. So here I am. And I need I, I, I need to make money. I need to I need to, to live. And the the neat part about that is I went to college with Detroit police officers, all black, and we became very good friends. Um, and as a result of that, they encouraged me to become a police officer. So they were police officers studying yeah. to better themselves or, yeah. I guess, explore different areas? Well, the, the police department was paying for them to go to school. Oh, very cool. Um, yeah. There was there were federal grants, and the law enforcement assistance program was paying. It would give agencies money for the cops to go to school. So they, went, they were going to school. And the idea is if you become educated and get a degree— still is today, then that becomes the catalyst for you to be able to move up the rank um, to get promoted. I see. Okay. So I, I, I just hung out with these guys. We kind of, we, we jailed. And so I'm like, there's nothing else that I can, I literally, I could not find a job. So I uh, took the test to become a state trooper and actually got hired. Mm. And my dad had prostate cancer and I had to quit the Academy to come home to take care uh, my dad had a small janitorial business, so I quit and I came home to take care of, take care of him, my mom. And then I got hired as a conservation officer. But in that conversation that I had with my mom and my dad, my dad was shocked and he called me a useless piece of shit. Wow. Um, because I had made the decision to become a police officer and he called me a traitor. That's brutal. It, it is. It, it's very brutal. And so when I asked, we, we had this discussion about working at Ford Motor Company because he had worked there for 33 years. Mm. I said, you don't want me to work at Ford. You don't want me to work in a plant. So now, you know, here's an opportunity for me to do something different. You can do anything. Well, they didn't understand that you, that you just couldn't do anything because, <laughs> you, you know, that degree didn't, it didn't open up a whole lot of doors. So I went to the academy um, I became the second black conservation officer in the state of Michigan, which was an interesting job. The job is not a lot of people love it. I hated the outdoors, but it was an opportunity. It paid more money because now you got to look at what I became at, when I got hired. What I was looking to do was money and benefits hmm. that literally because my dad had always talked about having a retirement oh, and being able to retire and get, you know, because he worked 33 years to get that retirement check. And so in his mind, that's what you, you want. You want good medical. You want good. You want all the you want those things so you can live a decent life. That's interesting. So when you started off, you had no high level goal to try and change the system or be good or to try and solve racial tensions between cops and black Americans. You never nope. thought about any of that. Wow. OK. It, it, you know, because to me, it, it, it was about. Literally, it was about my next phase of my life. Where am I going to go with my life? I became a conservation officer, and that was probably because there were only two of us. Um, the racism was rampant. Mm. And so I left. 
Oh, the academy was bad. When I went, I was the first and I was the first black to ever attend my academy at Northern Michigan University. Wow. And so I'm 500 miles. Now, I'm in Detroit's at the very bottom of the state of Michigan. I am all the way up in Marquette, Michigan, across the bridge, 500 miles away from home. Hmm. And um, <laughs> when I was there, I remember um, one of the guys in the academy. Now, the, the academy is about building camaraderie, esprit de corps. It's like creating this unity so that because you got to go out and basically you're, you're us against the world kind of thing. Right. Yep. And I remember one of the guys looking at me and he says, you know, if your black ass ever got on the radio and called for backup, we wouldn't come. Holy. <laughs> That's terrible. And do you think that was the prevailing thought as in most white officers or people, white people in the academy were not a fan of you? I would say half of my class had that, had that, that was part of their agenda. Half of them. Yeah. Wow. That's way too many. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, and my response to him is, well, if your white ass got on the radio and you called for backup, I wouldn't come for you. And you could just see him just the shock on his face. Like, like <laughs> you're supposed to come for me. Really? No. <laughs> So that was that was the and that I hated every day that I went to the academy, but because I was the only one, I couldn't quit. Yeah. So I I gra you know I made it. I graduated. Um, Do you think at some point during the academy, when you started facing all of this racial prejudice, you thought, okay, I need to do something about this, or I need to stand for something? No, it was still more about the money and the benefits. You well, you got to understand that when you make when you decide that you are going to go through it. Um, regardless of whatever happens, you have made the stance. Because if if I quit, what does that say about the next black person that wants to go through this? Mm. So you 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 are really making a statement and you are you are making a stance. And if they give you shit, you give the shit back to them. That was the one thing I, I had no problem with is is if you gave it to me, you got it back. And I had a couple of friends. But that that was the gist of how we how how it went. Here an interesting story about the academy, and I think you'll appreciate this. I've driven through a blizzard 500 miles to get to the academy on a Sunday. The academy starts the next day, and I get all my shit and I'm wrangling it up and I'm bringing it upstairs. And, and we're staying in a hotel, and I get up. I, the the um the elevator door opens, and there's this guy coming out of his room, and he white guy, and he looks at me. He goes, hold on a second. I got something for your black ass. Oh. And I'm like, what the hell? So now I'm trying to find my room, right? I'm I'm looking so I can try to get there. He comes out with a shotgun. No way. In the hotel. This is a true story. And I am literally backpedaling. I, I saw where my room was. It's at the end, and I'm backpedaling to get to my room with my eye on him. I was able to get the key in the door throw my bags in there and dive on the floor and slam it shut and laid on the floor for 20 minutes. He came I, at you with a shotgun in a hotel, yeah, in a yeah, public place. Yeah. Did he get in trouble for that? He did get arrested. Okay. He, he did get arrested. But you know, I, 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 I was so scared I couldn't even pick up the phone to call the front desk. But I got downstairs and told a couple of the guys that I knew and they went to the front desk and they called the police and they came and they, they arrested him. But when they opened the door, they found like 15 guns in this guy's, um, in his hotel room. But yeah, he went to jail. 
that, that was that, absurd. Yeah, the academy hadn't even started. That tomorrow the academy was starting, and that's what I encountered when I got there. That is frightening. Yeah. Wow. You know, we talked about how you went through the academy and the initial reasons why you went through it. But as you were a police officer, at some point, did you think, hey, there is something very wrong about the way we're doing things? Did you enter a system in which you felt like it was targeting black Americans specifically? I don't necessarily say targeting um, because I never felt necessarily that because from the stuff that I did, and the people I worked with, I never necessarily felt that they were that the, the organization or the officers themselves were targeting. Maybe one or two, but as a whole, no. I remember I, I did some work with the U.S. Marshals in Grand Rapids, and I remember an old marshal, old black marshal. I'll never, I never forget. I can't think of his name, but I'll. I'll he looked at me and he goes, "You know, they're going to forget you. They're going to forget that you're black, and they're going to say things that you will never believe." Mm. And I'm like, "Huh?" How can you forget, you know, my big black ass standing there? How are you going to forget me? He goes, they will forget because they think that you are one of them and that your race has nothing to do with um, how you police. And he was right because they would make comments about about black folks. They would make racial comments using the N word. Um, I remember sitting in briefing one day and the sergeant looked and he goes, hey, did they arrest those niggas uh, uh, that did the burglary to those cars? I'm sitting right in front of him. <laughs> and another sergeant goes, what'd you say? That's insane, yeah. He goes, you know, those niggas that broke into those cars, in those cars, did they arrest, arrest them? And he looked, goes, oh, shit. I go, I'm good. And I got up and walked out of briefing. And then he tried to chase me down and apologize and have a conversation with me. I go, nope, we're done. I know where you stand. Yeah, that is terrible. So, so yeah. you were That's probably... happened on multiple occasions during my career. Do you think as a black police officer, you were marginalized both by fellow police officers and the general public? Do you think you yep. get less respect as a black police officer? Yep. As a black police officer, the black community looks at you, many in the black community look at you as a traitor. And um, I've heard this term, a white man's nigger. Hmm. I even remember one time I made an arrest and a lady called me a black cracker motherfucker. And that was funny to me because crackers are usually white. Right. And I literally had to, I busted out laughing. Um, but that was, that, that was her analogy of me because she was going to jail for drunk driving and crashing her car. Uh. Okay. Um, and in the ranks, the rank and file, they, one is there's competition because everybody wants to be promoted. And so then when you get promoted, being a black man or a minority, um, and that this includes females, then if you're on that list, well, I'm right next to you, or I'm right below you or just above you. So that means they 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 want to promote, they gotta promote somebody black. So that means you're getting promoted. Mm. Not not that, you know, I had years of experience, not that I have an education, not that I, you know, I what I've done for the department, being on cops and FTO, all these things that you know, all these things, these monikers that you 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 work hard to be successful at. They refuse to acknowledge that. And the only reason you're being promoted is because you're black. Hmm. That is terrible. Yeah. Yeah, that is a bad way to think. Okay. I would like to jump into the present, if that's okay with you. Okay. And uh, I remember you saying this about George Floyd. You described the whole incident as a perfect storm, which was I found very interesting at the time. Do you want to explain what 
that kind of meant to you? Yeah, a perfect storm. Perfect storm. Hmm. The country is at home because of COVID, right? Yeah. Which means that America has nothing to do but look at their TV sets. Dad's not going away to work. Um, I'm not taking the kids to daycare. I have nothing to do but focus on TV. So for the first time, white America really gets to see what black communities are complaining about with the murder of George Floyd. They see the brutality and they're willing to acknowledge it. Okay. Black communities have been arguing and complaining about this for 300 years. And the way the way white folks used to, what they would tell me is, well, you know, if black people didn't do anything wrong, the police wouldn't be stopping them. So they, they were under the impression that all police action was based on a legal foundation and that the police were being unbiased. Mm. And so that the perfect storm means America had to face its racism. It means that you had to watch a white police officer kill several police officers, kill this black man. They murdered him. Mm. And that actually shocked their conscience because now you can no longer sit by and say, I didn't see it because I was at work. Yeah. Okay. Um, you and it, they played it over and over and over. And, and, and as a result, people felt there needed to be change. And that was a momentous push. Black Lives Matter, prior to that, had almost been seen as a terrorist organization. In fact, the FBI, meant, they didn't mention them by name, but they talked about their the genesis of them, their foundation, in one of their their bulletins that they put out. Oh well. So when you 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 know and and I get there these issues, but then this is the first time that there need that somebody's saying there needs to be change. So that perfect storm was COVID. People are off from work, got to watch TV, and then the news media playing it over and over and over again. Then the riots there was a response with the riots and it, it just, you know, and, and the rest of that's just pretty much history, but that's how we got there. Now we are rolling back to everybody's going to work. Right. Mm. Um, and nobody really gives a damn. Yeah. Because yep. is the same thing still happening? Sure. It's happening, but there's really no change in the way we do the way cops do business. Yeah. Um, so that, that, so when America has distractions, they're they're uninterested. I guess mm. that's probably the best way to put it. Yeah, I, I think you you mentioned some great points, and I I think maybe we should touch on, I guess what the Black Lives Movement, Black Lives Matter movement achieved during that time because they actually did gain um they got a lot of funding during that time, but I, I think it is somewhat controversial as to how they used their funds or what sure. came as a result of everything because. Um, from what I saw, s certain cities, like they ba banned the use of tear gas or chokeholds, and then they created mini councils to review and set standards. But you thought that most of this was pretty ineffective, right? Yeah, let's, I mean, let's talk about tear gas. So how do you, how do, how do you want police to respond to people who are in riots and burning the buildings down? What tools do they have? You don't, you know, we, 
what if you have uh, a commission or a, a citizens review board, how much power do they have in oversight of the police? And how are police going to be disciplined outside of the normal disciplinary process? I know if I if I was a cop and I got called before a citizens review board and my case is under investigation, I would never speak to the citizens review board mm. because that that you know I have a right against self incrimination. You see where I'm going? Yeah. So we ban the chokehold. So what are you putting in place of the chokehold? Did they put anything in place? I guess no, no. Yeah. Hell no. You know, we 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 instituted tasers, right? Mm. Tasers don't necessarily work all the time. And when you get into this confrontation where it's this and you are fighting for your life. Now, if you can articulate, I mean, just the random use of a chokehold. No. But if, if I'm a, if I'm getting my ass kicked and I'm I'm going, then I'm choking. I don't give a damn what policy it is. Right. OK. But then if you think about what happened in New York where they had banned the chokehold for 10 years. Mm. And it's a casual arrest, and the only thing that was wrong is the gentleman was too fat. He was too heavy for them to control. So they choked him out, and he died. Mm. So we can ban it all we want, but then again, if we don't train officers with skill sets, which is the other part to that, is they don't want, agencies don't necessarily have the money or the time to invest in that type of ongoing training all the time. Right. And I was a trainer here in Gainesville. And what we found is, let's say, the first thing to go when the budget got cut was training. So we get to a segment of, of driving. Driving is a perishable skill. Soon as they would cut it, crashes would go up with patrol cars. Mm -hmm. if, if we were into this, the, this, the segment with uh, defensive tactics, meaning baton and, and empty hand control kind of stuff. They would uh, cut that. And so the next thing you have is officer injuries would go up. Right. So all those skills are perishable. But on the other side of that, the city makes decisions and, 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 and the agency makes decisions to cut things because they don't have money and or they don't want to invest in ongoing training. And when you don't do that, the result is what you see is you see those damn chokeholds because I have nothing else and I'm losing control. Mm. So I guess what you're saying is the solution is not as easy as defunding the police. No, no, no. It, it, I mean, if you take stuff away, what are you putting in this place? And that's the question that you, you really have to see that, that needs to be asked seriously. Mm. So, you know, are, are mistakes going to happen? Sure. Are people going to get hit with tear gas canisters or projectiles that wasn't necessarily meant to be, there, there's no doubt in my mind that's going to happen because you're talking about humans and you're talking about dynamic movement when you talk about subjects and suspects. And so you shot one way, you thought that person was going to move the other way, and they moved right into what you did. So they moved right into the tear gas, and they got hit. It's, it's going to happen. But does that mean that we stop using the tools that we have that are effective because if you don't have that, then what what are you going to use? And I don't think the public necessarily sees that. They just see let's going we're going to defund the police. Who's going to respond? <laughs> to, yeah, I was at a at Gainesville. They um they had a budget meeting during COVID for the PD. It usually lasts an hour, eight hours. Wow. And people who weren't even from the city 
are there. You need to defund the police department, defund the police department, defund the police department. And then finally, one guy, gentleman that lived in the, in the black community, he, he says, hey, do you live here? Do you live in the black community? Do you understand what our community would be, be like without the police? And that ended that conversation. That quick. That quick. Hmm. Because he had no point of reference. It was just an idea. But the city commission was arguing we need to defund the police. We need to. T we don't need police in schools with guns. We need to have. So, how do you respond to a school shooting? I mean, it it, it became so asinine. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Because nobody sat to think about what the repercussions would be if you did these things. Yeah, it seems like you sit at a very interesting place because. Obviously, as a black American, but also as a police officer, you see both sides of the coin. Yeah. And what you're saying is these solutions are the solutions are not that straightforward. It's not, oh, George Floyd got choked out or there was a chokehold and someone died from it. So let's eliminate chokeholds. The solution yeah. is never that easy in your eyes. It's not. And, and you got to go back and look. And the, the key becomes what is the quality of training? When was the last time the guys were trained? If an officer has been disciplined? Like in Chauvin's case, when George Floyd, he had 18 complaints filed against him. Wow. So why the hell is he still working? <laughs> yeah. Um, the other part to that is the police unions. They are so powerful that they keep they fight for officers to keep them working. So think about that. So the guy is a piece of shit. The union steps up and they keep him there. And he continues to be a piece of shit until he does what Chauvin did, or they commit rape, or they they shoot an unsus you know an, an unsuspecting person. Come on, man. That so there there has to be give and take in this process, and they have to be willing. The union has to be willing to do what's best for the agency and to do what's best for the community. I see. Mm. I want to look back to something that you said a lot earlier, which was the cyclical state of things, and it seems like black communities stay in poverty and stay in these cycles of violence because of, I guess, this greater cycle, right? Because of potential over-policing and then the greater crime rates and then increasing like single family households. Is that something that you've seen as police also or as a black American? You know, we, they blame a lot on single family households and I, I don't necessarily subscribe to that. Mm. I, I subscribe to what role do the parents play? Well, even if it's one parent, what role is that mom playing in trying to do what she can do? What the old adage used to be, it takes a village. In my day, if you screwed up, it just wasn't your mom that your dad beat your ass. It would be the neighbor across the street that would beat you, you know, for screwing up. And, and it would have that type of interest. And um, so that that's a part of it. But over-policing, this is, you know, you could say that the the and I'm going to get hammered for this, but the a lot of violent crime occurs in the black community. Yeah. All right. And and there's no doubt that 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 happens. So what agencies do is they like to pick at the way they're going to address it. We had the war on drugs. What did that get us? <laughs> a bunch of people in prison. But now you know. One of the, the, the things I like to see agencies like to do is a black man on a bicycle at night. They'll stop him because he has no light. OK, yep. by by statute, there should be a light on the front and a light on the back that's visible from 500 feet. 
So they'll stop a black man on the bike in a black neighborhood. The idea is, is that black man on the bike is probably a drug dealer or has warrants on him. Now, if you don't have warrants and there's no drugs, all right, then they'll write him a ticket that'll cost him $60. So what's going to happen in 60 days? There's going to be a warrant for his arrest because he can't afford to pay for the damn light on the bicycle. Hmm. Think about this. He wouldn't be on that damn bike if he, you know, if, if he could afford to drive a car. Yeah. But that that becomes that becomes the adage. And so you you pick and you pick and you pick and you pick. My son got stopped by my agency hmm. riding his bike. Without a light? Without a light. <laughs> No, he had a light. I take that back because uh, that was the one thing I ensured that he, because I said, they're not stopping you for not having a damn light on your bike. So I had made sure he had an operable light on the front and an operable light on the back. So they stopped him because he was black and he was riding home. Okay. They stop him. They want to search him. Nope. You're not searching me. And this goes on for like 15 minutes and he's just playing the game. And finally he looks at him and says, do you know my dad? Who's your dad? Dave Thomas got in their cars and they left. Hmm. And then as an adult, they were they were screwing around with him. And so what I ended up having to do is, and this is after I retired, I called one of my own supervisors. I said, you tell them to stop or I'll come down and file a formal complaint. Hmm. That stopped it. Yeah. But if you're not me, how many other people have, you know, God, there's thousands of them. And, and, and what I used to do with black trainees is if I had them in my car and they rode with me for the, the in their cycle of, of field training is usually 12 weeks. So, and they go four weeks with each, with three different FTOs, field training officers. If I got you and you rode with me, I would tell you, look, I know what you got to do to get through the FTO program. So you're going to go in the black community. You're going to be writing tickets to black folks and you're going to be writing them on for bike, no, no lights on their bicycles. I said, you're going to make bullshit arrests too. You got to play the game because you got to get through the system in order to, you know, to be successful. Do what you got to do. But if I catch your ass doing that after you get out of the FTO program, we are going to have a talk Mm. because these people get they are getting enough handed to them on a daily basis without us doing some making some bullshit arrests. Yeah. You know, like pushing the shopping cart at night or being in possession of a shopping cart. That's I think that's a felony here in the state of Florida. Yeah. So, so <laughs> I'm poor homeless guy. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I it's, see. It's bullshit arrest. Um, Tampa PD. They they did this thing where they were stopping black males only on bicycles at night, and so but they could not attribute it to there were a number of you know like there's been crashes. They had a number of robberies that occurred because of black males on bicycles. So they targeted every black male on the bicycle got stopped and got shook down because they wanted to stop the robberies. But they didn't offer that same opportunity any other place in the city. Mm. So they don't they when they don't look at the the end of the project. They don't look at how that project is impacting people. And so they just agencies just institute something because they want to stop it. If that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. You know what's interesting? I from hearing that story about your son getting stopped on the bike and his refusal to be searched, it seems like from the history of police officers and what has happened between, sorry, what has happened between police officers and black Americans, 
there seems to be a lot of anxiety when dealing with the police. And I think that can cause a lot more incidents, right? Because okay. then black Americans are saying, no, I don't want to be searched. And they might even be very defensive about it. And then it just creates great attention in that moment. So as a police officer, do you see that when you're dealing with a black American that you might just be, think, why is this person so incredibly defensive in this position? Yeah, I've seen, I've seen the anxiety and I've seen the resistance, but I've also watched officers do, this is the one thing that I've watched people do. I've watched officers do. Can I search your car? Nope. Why, do you got something to hide? Nope, I don't want you searching my car. Or can I pat you down? No, no reasonable suspicion to, based on the law, articulable facts determined that this person might be armed or in possession of some sort of drugs. They just want to pat them down. Um, and the person says no. Mm. So the pushback is, and you have every right as a citizen to say no. But then the police many times, oftentimes will try to chide you into forcing you into making you feel guilty in order to be able so they can they can get what they want on the traffic stop i won't let you in my car okay i'll just call the dog and we'll let the dog sniff the exterior of your car well how do you get to the point of wanting to have a dog come and serve is there anything that you can put here that makes that, that you can say this person might be in possession of narcotics i'll give you another example i i, I was sent to back up a, a white officer he had stopped God, this is crazy because I'm the same age now. I'll be, I will be in, in uh, next week. A 67-year-old black man who was crippled. Mm. Okay. And he got him out of the car and he handcuffed him. Now, I'm his backup. Yep. The guy, he handcuffs the guy and walks him back to his patrol car, searches him and sits him in the back of his car. And I, I'm just watching this and I'm like, okay. So he, the guy, his driver's license was suspended. You have every right to arrest him. But why? <laughs> when you can write him a ticket, why are you even handcuffing him? Who Who is he going to hurt? And I've been to a different side of the city with the same officer and watched him want to let a white person go who was wanted on a felony. And so, why do you think he treated those two people differently? Do you think it was Oh, there's no doubt bias? it was race. Ah. There, there's absolutely no doubt it was race. But so when I look at this, I'm thinking, okay, that could be my dad, or that could be my mom, or that could be my wife, that could be my mother-in-law. Yep. That could be my father-in-law. And this is what you do, and it's something simple because the driver's license is suspended, and the argument will be, well, the license was suspended. They they, they violated the law. Get the fuck out of here. But that's, that's the bullshit you see, that those are the games. And those are the games that, in my mind, that really create this chasm between the, the minority community and police because mm. the police, they, they think, you know, because the law, it says what it says that they, they, they will abuse that in order to make an arrest. The other thing that you have to look at when you think about agencies is how do they value their officers? Okay. Mm. Are you, is your agency a numbers oriented agency? Meaning that they value you based on the number of arrests, um, the number of tickets that you've written, um, the number of stops that you made on people. Are they valuing that? Or are they valuing you for being a good officer and in your area you've reduced crime? Uh, those are two those are two different things. Right. Okay. So you're not so do they value for the quality of the work versus the numbers? My entire career was all numbers. 
That's all they gave a damn about was numbers because to them, they could always show, see how productive my people are. Yes. And and when you watch the big drug bus, what do you see? You see all the drugs and all <laughs> the guns. Okay. But what about the work that we did to get here to get that? That's the, the stuff that you should be talking about. But we don't because that's how we, we as Americans quantify things. And that in policing has to get away from quantifying based on numbers. How we police probably should be done. There's no doubt that it should be intelligence led, meaning that how we create our patrol districts, how people respond to calls, all that stuff should be put together. And the, and we design maps and, and how, how we are going to patrol our city. But we don't necessarily have to go out and just have tons of tickets and tons of, you know, that's, that's yeah. just a bunch yeah. of bullshit. That seems like the incentives are, are definitely misaligned, right? And you said this happened for your entire career. This is not just career. one city. So the, this is, well, I don't know if you can speak on behalf of um, other agencies, but is this what the majority of agencies look like in America, you think? A lot of agencies quantify, because how else, the, the question becomes, how else do we, if you look at an officer, how else do you understand how good a quality of the work? Because the only thing we have is we have the police reports that he or she, he or she has written. We have the arrests that they, they've written. So a supervisor reading those reports knows if you have good, you, you've done good quality work. And then, so that's how you, but, but the numbers, I, I remember I had a supervisor, every month they would post the numbers. Every agency I worked for, every month they would post the numbers by officer on the fucking board. It's like a sales job. So the whole department, everybody in patrol can see what you did. And I had one supervisor come in and says, I don't want to look like a fucking idiot. And you guys better get out there and do some humping because I don't want to be the son of a bitch that's left out in the dark. So he they they encourage the numbers, which leads to abuse. Yeah. Because if I can't find something, the pressure's on, I'm gonna create some bullshit. You're gonna push it. Yeah. Oh god, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So that's and that's how and that's how we're judged. His promotion or potential promotion. Is judged on that very fact. You know, what kind of supervisor was he? Well, how did he lead his people? What are the numbers? I want to get transferred to a specialty unit. How do we determine that? And I remember one of my supervisors going, we two supervisors, two sergeants, they wanted, they were debating on on um, who they were going to bring to the special unit, the street crimes unit. And so what they ended up doing is they went and pulled their statistics for one year mm. and compared them. Whoever had the highest statistics, that's how that person got into that unit. Right. Do you think the incentives essentially make it more advantageous to target black Americans? Sure. Easy. Because it's more likely that you will get an arrest, right? Yeah. Because, I mean, we did talk about it earlier, but black Americans do commit more crime on average. But they're also not the ones that are going to complain. Hmm. Nobody believes... If I'm telling you I'm innocent, nobody believes me sitting there saying I'm innocent and shit. Yeah. So it, it becomes a very easy target. I can't necessarily afford an attorney. And so it becomes a very easy target. You see where I'm going? Yes, I do. Yeah. And, and so um, I know one of the big things is, I'll give you another example. One of the things around here is police will say they get out, they, they're getting out to talk to a black male that's standing on the corner or walking down the street. And as soon as the black male sees them, they take off running. 
And they'll ask for traffic, meaning they want to shut down the radio channel so they can talk about this foot chase that they're in. And then they'll chase them down, they'll catch them, and they'll handcuff them, and they'll arrest them. Okay, so what's the original charge? You're telling me that I have to stand here and talk to you. I'm a citizen of this country. I ain't got to say shit to you. I don't even have to stand here. Mm. So what they'll do is they'll charge the person who ran for resisting without violence. Okay, there's no resistance because there's no charge up front. Right. So and then they'll search them and we'll find drugs. You see where I'm going? Yeah. But you didn't have the original charge to begin with. Mm. So they create this charge in order to make everything else happen. So what happens is officers, they fight. People will fight you. Officers get assaulted. Officers end up killing suspects over this, right? And so it's very bad decision-making, but it's because the minority community, black communities, black people, and many of these communities are easy targets, especially young black males, because they're out. And so we'll they'll pick on them because they really don't have the recourse or the resources to be able to fight any of the bullshit charges that come up. Right. I'm trying to bring this to a high level now. Do you think that the average, do you think a lot of police officers are racist towards black Americans? Or do you think that perhaps the incentives essentially force officers to target black Americans or black young black males specifically? Also? I think it's some of both. Mm. If the whole system was racist, it, it, oh my God, it, it, there are a lot of guys and gals and, and, and trust me, I, the percentage that are racist or show that that play that game out it, is minimal. Let's say five, five percent. But beyond that, because I believe that most people have that, that become police officers have in their brain that they want to do a good job, that they want to help people. You know, and so, you know, but you have to recognize that the culture of that organization oftentimes changes people. Yeah. In order for me to fit in, in order for me to survive, I have to do what everybody else does. Mm. If I don't do what they do, then I'm considered useless or I'm a, I'm a slug. And I've watched people come. I've, I've seen this. I worked at five agencies and I've seen people come and go. And not and and they don't do well at one agency, but they go to the next agency and they're superstars mm. because they didn't fit into the culture of the organization, the, the ongoing culture that we were in. And then they go to that next place. Now they become their superstars. Yeah. So because that culture is more to their personality. Right. If that makes sense. So that that. Yeah, I, I, I it's very difficult for me to say, you know, to make a blanket statement that that you know, a majority of cops are racist. That That's very difficult for me to do. I think yeah. that a yeah. lot of cops don't understand the trauma that communities have been through. Hmm. There's this thing that I've been doing recently called trauma-informed policing, which means that you go back into an, uh, a city's history and you look at the things that have happened in that, in that history. You go back as far back as 1800, if you can, hmm. and look at those things that have happened in that, that history and what people don't understand is that in the black community, that information is shared verbally. Yeah. Okay. And, it, and those stories are told year after year after year after year. And so they, that those stories are never forgotten. Mm. You know, there's Emmett Till, which is a very unique set of circumstances. But there's a whole yeah. lot of people that are like Emmett Till that that story never got told. You know, and so those stories 
and the racial, the racist incidents which occur in a community, who's the who's going to be responsible for supporting government? Who's the most visible part of government? It's cops. So whatever those actions are, that community is tying that government's actions to those police officers. Right. So they get that label. So basically, what officers don't like to hear, don't want to be responsible. And there, many of them, the reality is they're not responsible. Today's officers are not responsible for some shit that happened 30 years ago. Yep. Right? But with that in mind, that community still, that's still in their mind. Yes, they haven't forgotten. And that's why my dad called me useless piece of shit, because he remembered all of those things mm. when he was coming up. He was born in 1914. So he remembered all of that stuff coming through wow. those years, right? So that that information, and, and so police don't like to deal with the trauma because of, of what has happened in the past because all they're here to do is a job that's here and now. If you understand where you came from, it makes it much easier to police. Yeah. It seems like n not something that is mandatory to, to teach, right? Because you go through police academy, and I assume there's no history classes in police academy. And then you just come in and you think this is like a blank state, blank slate, sorry. But this community has been through so much. Right, right. And they have and history from like previous cops and their parents have history of previous officers, right? And, th and then you look at it, the um, a lot of people that come to these agencies don't come from the city that they're working in. They've come from someplace else to work here, so that makes it even worse. Mm. So they they have no clue of what has gone on in this community, how this community, the, the struggles that have gone on in the, in the black community or the Latino community. They, they got no clue. And so they're thinking, I'm just here, you know, I'm here, to, I'm the blank slate here to enforce the law. And that, that nothing could be further from the truth because the people that you're dealing with have a history that you have no knowledge of. Yes. For sure. And I, and what is the history? What is the history of police? We were muggers, robbers, thieves. Go back and look at what what New York City, the way the New York City Police Department started mm -hmm. and who got appointed as police officers. They wasn't stand up citizens like, you know, like we have these great standards today. They were so fucking far from that. It was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So our history is not necessarily in police is not necessarily the best history. Even though we we've tried to we have professionalized it, so that's the the dynamic. And and you got people like my dad; they remember that they remember that you know. And that, those are the stories he told me yeah. um, when I was coming up. So that that those stories stick in in, a, in in your brain. Yeah, how could you forget though, right? I mean, you remember so many incidents that occurred yeah. in the yeah. past. Yeah, I do want to touch on Emmett Till a bit because when I read that story, I thought it was so powerful because I think it kind of is similar to. Uh, the George Floyd incident and many of these other, the Ronnie King incident, which sure. it, there was this powerful shock factor, I think that causes um, people to, to rise up because just for the viewers who don't know, I'm, I'm sure you know a bit about the story, but Emmett Till was, was he burned? He was shot and burned. He was accused Emasculated. of- Yes, he was accused of raping or having an inappropriate interaction with, with whistling at a white woman is the way it originally whistling started. a white woman yes something as small as that and then he was just a kid as well right he was um 13 at the time and he his mother had him um had his body brought back to his home city which i unfortunately forgot um chicago, chicago yes and then in the funeral he had 
she had an open casket so people could see could literally see what happened to him and rosa parks later actually said that she was i, I don't want to say inspired but she refused to give up her seat because of seeing emma till's remains yeah. so i thought that was an incredible story because emma till's mother decided to put herself through so much pain yeah. to make a statement to others yeah, yeah. so i i thought that was really a really great story talking about solutions from earlier on we did talk about community policing but it seems like there are many facets to approach this problem i mean there's political problems even in the healthcare system the economic system aside from community policing do you see any other avenues of tackling this because black lives matter i think really tried to tackle this from a monetary perspective where they tried to uh, fund from what I understand, like smaller Black Lives Matter groups all over the country. But I'm not sure how effective that was. Look, the whole system um, has failed in, in, in its own way. Education, mm. um, you look at schools and, you you know, some of the school systems are abysmal. Um, and so that that's part of it. You look at um, quality of health care. That's a part of it. You look at availability or ability or jobs, quality jobs. That that's that's another part of that. So there, there's a socioeconomic part to that. And here's if you think about if you think about this country, whenever it's gone to hell in a handbasket, or whenever there have been changes, and I'll give you an example. In the 70s, the late late 70s, early 80s, they closed down all the mental institutions in the country, and they released all those people on the street. <laughs> Whose problem was that? Police. We had no special training. There was nothing that, that they gave us. Every time there is some sort of social change, then the person that the, the group that gets dumped on is law enforcement. Yeah. Without any provisions, without any special anything, it's now your problem. So basically, and this is a horrible way to describe it, it's like there's that part of the system has failed. So when you look at when you look at the, the totality of it, sure, the, the system has failed and cops are left with having to clean up the mess. Policing needs to be reimagined. Mm. You we I mean, if this were a different time, I would say we can't we don't need bodies, but you need bodies because nobody wants to be the police anymore. But the reality is, is when you when you look at this in, 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 in as a structure I know I, I had this argument with the sheriff, the, our current sheriff, who's a friend, about, I said, you know, you guys need to rethink how we're doing mental health issues. Mm. And he's looking at me, well, that's a cop problem. I go, okay. <laughs> I said, so do you realize that when we have a, a, a center here, a crisis center here, I said, so do you realize if I pick up the phone and call them and I'm suicidal, they will come to my house without ever notifying you? That, I, that they're going to my house? He looked at me and thought, no. I said, do it all the time. They've been doing it for years. Mm. And they convinced the person that they need to go to the hospital and they transport them. And he's like looking. I said, so think about, think about what that would mean if we, and this is when the big movement has started to let um, co-responders, you have a person riding with a police officer in the car that's a mental health clinician. Those are the types of things that have to be reimagined for policing. We got to start. We got to get out of this. It's, it's a police problem and only a, we can handle it. 
Because I can tell you right now, going to deal with people who are mentally ill, that's a lot of times ends up in people being seriously injured um, or shot, which you've seen you've seen a lot in this country that has happened. Yeah. So we as these problems arise, then I think everybody needs to sit at the table rather than defund. But think about how do we accomplish this goal? Some of it, the cities don't have money. Government isn't going to fund it. Some of this stuff. You might have, you got to look at your budget and say we need to, we need to re rethink how we're doing business in order to accommodate a goal. There's an officer here that I that I work with and she was telling me I asked her about you know do you guys get in fights when you respond to this because she's a she run she's the one of the co-responders. She goes no because that we we I haven't been in one fight I've been doing this for three years I haven't been in one fight. I said so how do the people see you? She says well they see us as coming to help them. The neat part is, is where I would have to fight somebody to get them in the car to get them to get mental health services. You got the person right there, community mental health, and sit right there and plug everything in the computer and drive them off and take them. They can transport the person and get all the mental health services that they need without ever having to fight mm. because you have access to services. So I think the reality is, is that's kind of the way we have to start thinking. Cops don't like it because it's not pure police work. Yes. But that has to happen in order for us to be able to move forward. Those mm. types of things. Wow. Yes. Okay. I, I do like that. Do you think that solving this issue of policing is an essential step in solving the great issue of inequality of black Americans? Because black Americans have the highest, highest poverty rates, lowest household net worth, lowest income, lowest employment, lowest graduation rates. Most deaths due to COVID. I mean, they are marginalized on so many metrics. I think that's that's a step. You know, I used to argue in a class that I had with uh, and it was all cops, which was great for me because I, I got to play the devil's advocate. And I used to argue that we need to we, we have to do more. You know, they, their thing was, OK, a guy went to prison. He gets he gets out and he goes and works at McDonald's. You'll you'll, you'll appreciate this. I go, OK, well, that's the job. I say, so how does a man feed his family? How does a man come back into society? Our, our system continues to punish once we've been to prison. So there is no real transition back into, into to mainstream life because you have this moniker of being a convict. Our society has to really rethink how we want to do business with people, mm. how, how we want to offer opportunities. So, and, and not just reaching out to give it to one or two, but the other part to that is policing is an, an intimate part of that. And the community has to be wanting to deal to deal with its problems where there are legal problems and to put the people in jail that need to be put in jail. Right. Um, right. And and that's that that's the fight. My mom, you know, I don't want I don't you know, I'm a mom and I don't want my child to go to jail. Well, he shouldn't he shouldn't be out here. Uh, he shouldn't have murdered that that other kid, that kind of thing. Yeah. So the community has to be willing to stand up and fight back to clean up its mess. But I think with that. They have to go in concert with society has to be willing to go in concert with them in order to make those things happen, to, to facilitate change. Right. It seems like, you know, having looked at um, the, the whole system in general, a lot of these issues of policing and crime cascades into many other facets of being a black American or yeah. why poverty is still so prevalent in these yeah. communities. OK, yeah. cool. Um, before we go into lining questions, is there anything else you want to talk about? I'm good, man. I, I, it's up to you now for your line questions. Let's go. Okay. Lining questions. Number one, 
who do you personally look up to? Dead or alive? My dad. Your dad? My dad. Yeah. Tell me about him. Um, He had a sixth grade education. He worked his entire life at Ford Motor Company, dedicated. I mean, and his goal was he had one thing that he made sure of is that his family was taken care of. Um, and to me, that a- after we got past me being a useless piece of shit and all yeah. of that, and he saw what I was trying to do in policing and w- what I was looking to do. Um, we, but when we, once we got beyond that, um, my dad was was I'm telling you, brother, that he was he was the man. He was the man I wish I could model my life after. Wow. Um, um, because you know he 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 hustled. He the, I will say this: my dad had a work ethic like no other. Mm. When he worked at Ford, he had three other jobs. And when he retired, he had five jobs. And oh. so I, I, I work like that. Even myself, I work like that now, but um, but not like he did. Not where I have to do it all the time. But he, you know, he was a provider and, and he was he was really a good man. And 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 um that is the person that uh that that I look at my life and I hope that I, I'm living up to that. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. Okay. Second question. And I don't know if you still do this, but do you have any New Year's resolutions? Anything you want to accomplish this year? The one thing I have that I want to accomplish this year is stay healthy. Mm. All right. When you're 67 years old, I've had, to give you an idea, I've had eight knee surgeries, shoulder surgery, elbow surgery. The last surgery was neck surgery two years ago. So if you look at that, that, that cascading effect of my body. Yeah. Um, is it for me is to just to stay healthy. Uh, uh, that, that's New Year's resolution and to start working out again. I, you know, I, but I hurt. Oh my God. I, my joints hurt so much all the time, but that that's the goal is, is to stay healthy. That's a good one. It seems like, uh, you're definitely at retirement age, but it seems like you're not retired at all. No, not at all. I got the university. So I do the Florida golf coach university. I've been there for 16 years now. Mm. I do. Uh, um, I have the counseling business, police counseling services, where I service five of the six agencies in our county. Um, do all their mental health work. My old agency, I do all of their work, um, which is is pretty much a pretty busy, pretty busy job. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then I do consulting, and the consulting is pretty cool because you know I get pulled in to go do assessments of police departments. Or be asked to go look at like uh, mental health. Some agency wants to start a mental health for their aid for their officers. So I, I get to get involved in that. Those are the things that keep me um, keep my juices flowing, and yeah. those are the challenges. Um, but yeah, um, so I, I keep busy because the the alternative is is not good, you know. Yeah, I mean you're doing very good work though, wouldn't you say? I mean this is almost. I, it seems like you found your purpose, and it's for the betterment of society. I have, but the the challenge has been. Um, my daughter and I had a long talk, and the thing that I talked about um, earlier, or probably October of last year with her, is that um, I was thinking about giving up my counseling business mm. to um, go work for somebody that uh, like uh, the Innocence Project mm. or something like that, because I know that so many people have been wrongfully convicted. Right. And I look at the bullshit work that got them there 
and I would like to have an impact on that kind of something like that. So that's still kind of like in the back of my head. That is maybe something that I want to do. But if I do that, that means I'm going to have to give up my counseling business to do it. Uh, I see. Because they don't go hand in hand because the officers aren't going to trust you. Yeah. To do their work and to, and to do what's best for them. Excuse me. If you've taken the stance of going and working with um, somebody like the, in- the Innocence Project. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Has anything surprised you about counseling? No. Um, you got to realize that when I started, we didn't have it. If uh-huh. you if you called in sick and you took a stress day, it was grievable. As in you could the, be punished the, for it. The city would not give you a stress day mm. until they finally went to an arbitrator. An arbitrator said, nope, stress is legitimate. And so, yeah, you, you can use it. Then the officers got mad. And, and I, I'll never forget the officer who did it. They got mad at him because he did it. And they said, you're saying that we're weak. He goes, no, we ain't weak. My ass, I'm just tired. You know, I'm, I'm, and no, man, so you're making us look bad. That's mm-hmm. literally, and that's the mentality. And that hasn't changed much. Fair enough, fair enough. Okay, considering we've been through a lot of different topics in this episode, and it's been incredibly enlightening, especially coming from a country like Australia where these issues really don't exist uh, is there anything else you would leave, you want to leave the viewers with? The only thing I would say is this. As we move forward, that police agent, the agencies and government and citizens have to sit down at a table and figure out what they want from their police. Hmm. Okay. If, and if that agency or organization is capable of doing it. And if they need the agency to be reimagined, they need to have a plan in order to be able to do that, have some insight. I, I've sat, um, I, I was talking to some community leaders in Fort Myers, and they go, oh, we talk to the sheriff, we talk to the chief all the time. I go, okay, so what are you talking about? Well, they sit down and meet with us. Well, hell, they, what does that mean? So do you have an agenda? Do you see things that are wrong? Do you want to facilitate change? Then go to the table willing to sit down and have those conversations. Just don't let them pacify you with a bunch of bullshit, Mm. but be honest in your assessment and be honest in having those conversations because quite frankly, law enforcement works for you. That's it. That's brilliant. So you're not afraid to, I guess, present the idea of revamping the system, changing things up, flipping it upside down. But it's unique. But each, each aspect of this system or each, the policing and communities is unique to each community. There's no one script for the entire United States. You know, there's what, almost 800,000 cops in this country. And every, every there's multiple agencies, multiple jurisdictions. Like here, we have six agencies in our county. When you think about that, and each community has different needs. Yeah. So that agency, it's important for that agency to understand what those needs are and then to adjust what their policing is in order to help facilitate those, address those problems. But it's not, we just can't write a script across the board and say, all right, this is it. This is the way policing is going to be for everybody because it ain't going to work. Wow. Yeah. So a fractured approach. Yes. Every city, every agency. That's very interesting. Okay. Brilliant. Well, Dr. David Thomas or doc, as you say, it has been fantastic having you on this episode of overthinking the modern world. And we thank you for joining. It's been a pleasure. Okay, catch you on the next one. All right, man. Take care of yourself. Stay safe. See ya.